Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Listen, we got work to do today, okay? Ephesians, there's a ton of content. It's all packed into a tight spot, so have your Bible open. Hey, can I just encourage you? Every week, you should bring two things with you. A physical Bible, okay? I know you have one in your phone. I do too. But it's really useful if you can actually write down and make some notes. Like, you might want to write Bob Ross's name in the margin of your Bible at some point today when we get there. You'll understand what I'm talking about. And it'd be handy to remember that in the future. And then maybe you want to bring with you an actual notebook, a piece of paper that you can make some notes down and look and glance back, all right? Hey, as a church, we journey towards God's heart, discipleship, and understanding God's word. We want to keep record of that, keep track of that together. In your own life, it's a tremendous value. So if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians 3 that Mike just read. We're going to get there in just a minute. A week and a half ago, the FDA issued a warning that I'm sure some of you saw if you need a commentary just on where we are as a society. Anybody know the warning I'm talking about that the FDA issued? You are not supposed to cook chicken in NyQuil, okay? You're not supposed to cook chicken in NyQuil. Um, The FDA uh, gave this warning in a response to a TikTok challenge. Parents, a reminder that TikTok is a really foolish place to give your kids free reign, okay? It's dangerous. It's also stupid and silly, Right, But there was actually a challenge where people were cooking chicken in NyQuil. I think it's called Sleepy Chicken. Um, Here's what the FDA said. And of course, you know, because we have lost all common sense as a society, we needed the government to tell us this. But when you boil NyQuil, it becomes more concentrated. It can alter it in a lot of ways. Um, Oh, even if you don't eat the chicken, you could be ingesting large amounts of NyQuil by inhaling the medicine's vapors while cooking it, even just standing in the room while it's cooking. This inhalation could lead to lung damage. Of course, in maybe what is further commentary on where we are as a society, the, the response to the FDA warning was a tremendous surge in searches for NyQuil chicken. Um, so God help us, God save us, right? Hey, the point here is this. There's nothing wrong with NyQuil, right? It, it tastes kind of bad. But when you are ill and you have a cold and you need sleep, it provides relief from your symptoms so that you can rest. If you're like me, a little bit of that pretty much just puts you into a coma. But it doesn't really matter how good a thing is. If it's used incorrectly, it doesn't just stop being good, it actually becomes harmful. When you use it incorrectly, it actually becomes damaging. We actually call it abuse. And that's why something even as seemingly simple or basic as NyQuil has a warning label that's about this long if you like peel the little thing back and it folds out, folds out, folds out, right? Which I'm sure now will have a new line added to it which is going to say something like, warning, do not uh, use while operating heavy machinery or as a marinade. (laughs) And if I could lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about this morning, it would be if I could put a warning label onto your faith. 
a warning label onto the gospel in your life, it would look something like this. It would say, warning, do not make this about you. Warning, do not make this about you. Because when we place ourselves at the center of the gospel, as the main character, the main theme, and the main point, we've taken something that's good, actually we've taken the best thing ever, and we've totally turned it upside down, and it can easily become harmful. And what we're going to see today is that actually keeping yourself out of the center of the gospel is a massive challenge for us, and it always has been. We live in a culture at large that wants to put self at the center of almost every single thing. If you want to upset one of my teenage daughters, like erase the widgets from the phone. Because even when I open my phone, my apps and my widgets need to look like I want them to look, where I want them to look, right? Speaking of phones, our phones have a camera that's literally made for taking pictures of ourselves. Like, think about how odd that is for a moment. And obviously, much has been written about how social media is creating a culture of narcissism. It's not just the never-ending quest for likes and follows. It's also the way the algorithms work around all of our apps to where, hey, I never have to listen to a song that I don't like. I never have to read a new story that I'm not interested in. Everything I want is the world as I made it, and it's pretty easy to move into this place where in a thousand little ways, self just gets put at the center of our life all the time. But technology and social media didn't make that happen in our lives. That's actually been there from the very, very beginning. What, I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3. They're in the garden, Adam and Eve living together with God, and the serpent comes to Eve, and the serpent tempts Eve and says, hey, you can be like God if you eat this fruit. What does the Bible say about that moment of original sin? It said that Eve saw the fruit, it was a delight to her eyes, and she thought the tree would make her wise. She wanted wisdom in her way, and so self-centeredness was actually the driving force of the fall of man. And self-centeredness has even creeped into our own little religious American evangelical culture. Yesterday, um, the girls wanted me to take them to Barnes & Noble, um, and so we were walking around the bookstore, and I took a little stroll through the Christian book section at Barnes & Noble yesterday. And, and just think about some of the titles that I saw there, some of these books. Shaken, Discovering Your True Identity in the Midst of Life Storms. That's by Tim Tebow. Hope he's a better author than he was quarterback for my Denver Broncos. Um, think Better, Live Better, A Victorious Life Begins in Your Mind. Getting Out of Your Head, Stopping the... Spiral of Toxic Thoughts. Over It, How to Face Life's Hurdles with Grit, Hustle, and Grace. Embrace Your Life, How to Find Joy when the life you have is, the not, is not the life you've hoped for, for. Live No Lives, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. Almost every single best-selling Christian book that I saw there yesterday was marketed about how you can live a better, more spiritual, more spiritual, more wholesome life. Actually, the majority of the books in the religious section looked a whole lot like the books that I saw in the help, self-help section two aisles over. Very similar. Now listen, I want to be careful here. 
I've never read any of those books, okay? Those books might contain great truth. Some of you might have read those books and been changed by those books. I'm not trashing the books, right, at all. They, might, they might be really useful and powerful. But the point is that even in our world, we tend to make the gospel primarily, and even evangelical booksellers are marketing to us about how we can have a better life, and we're putting self at the center of the gospel. And what I want us to do today is just take a pause for a minute pull ourselves out of the center of the story, put God back in the center of the story, and Ephesians 3 will make a whole lot of sense of why that's so difficult and what God's all about. So, Bibles, Ephesians 3. Let me say this also. The book of Ephesians is awesome. It's divided into two parts. Um, We are on, I think, the fourth week, fifth week, working through our way through the book of Ephesians. Part one of the book of Ephesians is chapters 1 through 3, and that's the part that's about the gospel. It's just Paul going on and on about, hey, this is what the gospel means, this is what the gospel is, this is what Christ has done, this is who you are. Ephesians 4.1 starts with this verse, there, or with this word, therefore. That word connects everything that happens in the second part of Ephesians, which is Ephesians 4-6, through 6, where Paul gets really practical about, hey, because of the reality, because of what we learned about the theology, because of the gospel, here's how you live our life. So we're still living over here in part one, right now, this week and next, where we're kind of talking about some theology stuff, and then we're moving towards a place where we're going to talk about what this means for our lives day to day. So I'm going to start with kind of the verses Mike read. We're going to unpack them from back to front, and I actually want to start with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. This is what Paul writes. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to pause. He is about to tell us what God is about in the world. He's about to give us a thesis statement for this is the mission of God in the world and we need to clue into it. And here it is. Um, that God, who created all things through the church, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God wants through the church for the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Can I start with what God's purpose is? What God's purpose is in the world is to display his wisdom for everyone to see. He is at the center of the story he is writing. Now, you and I are big characters in the story. We have a role in this story, but we're not the main character. And when you get the subplot mixed up with the main plot, you're cooking NyQuil chicken, okay? So let me talk about what the gospel is not. The gospel is not a plan for us to live a better life. The gospel is not a plan for you to become a better person. The gospel is not primarily about helping us get over our past hurts. It's not primarily about helping us to not sin. And it's not really primarily about even us avoiding an eternity separated from God. Those are all, it's about those things. Right? Those are all realities of the gospel, but they're not the main thing, the ultimate thing, the most important thing. What's the most important thing in the gospel? It is this, that Jesus Christ be glorified by every man, woman, child, every mountain, every sea, every star, every planet. Everything is moving towards his praise and his glory. That's the center of the gospel. 
Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who put our hope in Christ, what? Might be to the praise of his glory. He wants to heal you. He wants you to be a better person. He wants us to avoid sin. He wants us to spend eternity with him. But that's not an end of itself. The end is this, that we would be for his praise and for his glory. Colossians says it this way. Just, look, just listen to these words and how Jesus is at the very center of it all. He's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, even the things we can't see, right? All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead so that in him, so that in everything, he might have preeminence that he would have first place. So what God is about is making sure that Jesus is first and foremost in everything. And let's take a look at how he's going to do this. Back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. In him we were chosen. I'm sorry. Verse 10, there we go. So that what? Through the, what's the next word? Church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, authorities, and heavenly places. Our story is all about God's glory, and God's glory is magnified when we live out our lives in connection to the church. God has put the church in a special place over all other institutions, even the family, as a place where he will display his glory to the world. Hey, Listen, here's what Grace Point Church is not primarily about. We are not primarily about strengthening your marriage. We're not primarily about giving you parenting tips. We're not primarily about providing you a little bit of inspiration on Sunday morning to make it through the week. Those are all great things. We will do all those things. But you know what we're primarily about here? We're primarily about making a big deal about Jesus. We want him to be first and foremost in everything. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, the Bible says it this way about the church and our purpose. The Bible says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Hey, there is a major major trend, especially with some younger people in the world and Christian world today, and you've probably heard somebody say something like this, hey, I have a relationship with God, I love God, but like, I don't really need to be a part of a church in order to express that. I don't really need to be a part of the church in order to express that. Something like that. And listen, I get it. The church isn't perfect. It's downright messy at times. There's people who carry real wounds, real hurts from their time in the church. 
But when I hear somebody hear, say that, I'm hearing somebody who's making it about them and not about Jesus. Because they're not willing to be connected to a bigger picture of what God is all about. So if you ask, hey, are you saying that I can't glorify God in my life unless I'm connected to the church? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. You can't really participate in what God's doing in the world unless you're a part of a body, a church of believers, because it says right here, through the church, he is going to display his manifold wisdom to the world. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, authorities, and heavenly places. Hey, that word manifold is interesting. Um, this is the only time it's used in the Bible. And it has a, it's a, a compound word. It's two words put together. Um, one word is many, and the other word is various colors. And so the idea behind this is, is a painter. And since I know nothing about the arts, this is the only painter that like, comes to mind for me, Okay. But you watch Bob Ross. Rachel used to like watch the Bob Ross channel, and she was like falling asleep at night. Sorry, babe, didn't mean to out you for that, right? It's like, oh, let's get some cobalt blue and some yellow. We're gonna mix it all together, right? We're gonna build this. Uh, I don't know if you can use the word masterpiece and Bob Ross in the same in the same sentence there, right? But the idea here behind the word is a painter using all these colors, tying them together to make one cohesive masterpiece. Hey, you know who's in this room today? In this room today are families who have been the hands and feet of Jesus and adopted children. There's families who've walked through brokenness of failed adoptions, infertility struggles, miscarriages, the death of a child. There's people in this room today who have battled depression and anxiety disorder. There's people in this room who have escaped cycles of addiction and abuse because of God's healing. There's people in this room today who wake up every day and deal with the disappointment of their life. It's not what they thought it would be. There's people here who God has lifted up out of the ashes of divorce. There's people here who God has saved from the brink of divorce. There's marriages that have been restored and made whole. There's people just living normal day-to-day life, but walking with Jesus in a personal and powerful way, and that's compelling. And what I believe and what I think the Bible is telling us is this, that when people like that come together, Their lives tell a story together that shows that Jesus is a big, big deal. That is us being to the praise of his glory. Hey, can I tell you something else about who's in this room today? Are a bunch of people who are going to go through those experiences and just haven't yet. And something beautiful happens in the church the Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians that the God, our Father, Christ Jesus, comforts us with all of his mercies. He comforts us in all of our affliction. All those things that I just talked to, broken marriages, disappointments, hurts, wounds, God himself comforts us. And then what happens? So that we are able to comfort those who were in any affliction with the same comfort that we've received. Let me walk you through a real example from my own life. A lot of you know my story that 20 years ago, my dad was killed in a car wreck. My dad was a pastor of a church in Denver. Great, great man. 
We were driving to Lake of the Ozarks for a week of family vacation. He was killed in a car wreck. My whole family was there. We all saw it. It was very, very traumatic experience. Probably one of the, the defining moment in my life in so many ways. And to this day, when I meet someone, especially a man who's lost a parent, a man who's lost their father, there's an instant bond. You know what I'm talking about? When you meet somebody who's walked the road that you walked, and you go, I get you, I'm with you, that's this verse. Hey, let me tell you how God showed up for me when my dad was gone. And we encourage one another, and we love one another, and here's the point. You can't do that doing your own quiet time in the morning on a Sunday. You need to be connected to the body of Christ. Because what we're about at this church is making a big deal out of Jesus together. Amen? All right, let's keep going. So, God, he's got a purpose, making a big deal out of Jesus. He's got a vehicle for that purpose. That is the church, a unique vehicle where he's going to use us as a magnifying lens for his glory. And then he has given us what, he, what Paul repeatedly calls a mystery here. He's given us a mystery. We're keepers of this mystery. He's given us a message that's a mystery, and that's what the church is going to proclaim to the world. And that mystery is this, that now everybody has access to God. Every single person. Everybody. Here's what he says. We're working backwards, so now let's go look at Ephesians 3, 2 through 6. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations, but it's now been revealed by the Holy Spirit through the holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is this. He's going to tell us what the mystery is, okay? Here's the answer. This isn't like code language. The mystery is that. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise. This might be the most important thing that Paul wants us to understand in the whole first half of Ephesians because he spent half of chapter 2 talking about it. Now he's going to spend half of chapter 3 talking about it. And if I could turn this into some kind of modern vernacular, here's what I would say he wants us to know. Paul wants us to know this. The ground is completely level at the cross. The ground is level at the cross. And what I mean by that is this. Everybody has the exact same need for the message of the gospel. We are dead in our trespasses of sin without it. Absolutely dead. Doesn't matter how moral you might look on the outside, how good you might be on the outside. The ground's level at the cross. You need God like no one else has ever need God because we all need God as desperately as possible. Everybody has the same need for God and everybody has the same opportunity to connect to God through the gospel. And this is the greatest news ever for us, right? Like, hey, if I had to reach a certain level, I would completely fail every time. But even though in this weird juxtaposition, even though it's the best news ever in the history of the world, that everybody has access, that the ground is level at the cross, we can all be there. We resist this. We've always resisted this. There's something about us that wants to put self in the middle and somehow earn or feel like we deserve that position. That's what happens to, we're always getting pulled to that. Always getting pulled to self in the middle. 
Paul refers to the Gentiles being a part of this as the mystery of Christ. And he says it wasn't made known to other generations. I want to explain this for a minute. On my phone, I have a video um, from when Lily, my middle daughter, was about two years old, and we're playing hide-and-go-seek in the house. Anybody ever play hide-and-go-seek in the house with your kids, right? That was a big-time favorite of ours, all right? Especially when they're like two, three, when they're really young, right? So in this video, I'm, I'm doing the counting. I'm like, one, two, three, I count to ten. Right here I come. And immediately, you can hear Lily's voice from the coat closet going, Dad, I'm in the closet. Dad, I'm in the closet. And I'm... Looking around like, are you in the kitchen? No, dad, I'm in the closet. I'm in the closet. And she's calling me, right? So I'm, you know, you know, your parent, right? You do the whole shtick. I can't find her. And she's just yelling. Finally, she just comes out of the closet like, okay, here, I'm, I'm right here. I'm right here. That's the kind of mystery we're talking about here. Throughout the Old Testament, from the closet, God has been shouting to his people, the Jewish people the whole time, hey, everyone's going to be included. He was shouting it to them. It actually begins in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3. When he calls Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Everybody's going to be blessed through you. Do you hear that little voice from the closet saying, hey, this isn't just about you. This is about other people. He says it again to Abraham multiple times in the book of Genesis. Genesis 22, Genesis 28. We can't read all the verses in the Bible about this because throughout the Old Testament, this is a, wee, uh, a thread that gets woven in and out constantly. But Isaiah 49, verse 6, when Isaiah is talking about the servant of God, that is Jesus, I love this verse. Look at what it says. It says, it is too light of a thing. It's too small of a thing that you would be my servant and raise up the Jacob and bring back the tribes of Israel only. I will make you a light for all the nations. Hey, that's too small of a deal to just get these people. I want you to go bring everyone to me. Joel 2, verse 28 says this, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Really, from the beginning of time until now, God's been telling people, Hey, this blessing that's for you, Abraham, is really about the whole world. It's about everyone having access to God. And finally, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's that jump out of the closet moment, which is like, hey, here it is, plain as day, this is for everyone. But these people really struggle with that message, and here's why. There have been centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. So much animosity, actually, that when Jonah gets called to go to the Gentiles to tell the gospel to them back in the Old Testament, he, like, runs away from God. There's some intervention in the form of a fish, right? Jonah comes back. He ends up going to the city of Nineveh. He tells them about the gospel. They repent because the gospel's for everyone. The ground is level. But... Jonah's so upset about everything that happened that he climbs up on a hill and he wished he would die. That's some deep-seated animosity, right? That's dark. Jonah's not well. And inside of us, that same spirit of Jonah shows up when I'm content to have my relationship with Jesus And I'm not passionate about showing and sharing Jesus where I live, work, learn, and play. When I'm not content about praying and giving and going so the gospel can go to the nations. I mean, look, it's not as obviously ugly as Jonah, like throwing a hissy fit and pouting, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing where it's like, hey, I got mine. Good luck to everybody else. That's not what this message is about. 
This message is about showing God's glory to all the world. He's using his church and this unique message that the ground is level at the cross. I want to end with this. Hey, God's people see his purpose in every circumstance of life. God's people see his purpose in every circumstance of life. I want you to journey with me through the life of Paul for just a minute, okay? So here's how your New Testament works, in case some of you might not know this. Actually, I don't think I knew this until recently, all right? The book of Acts is a narrative of all this crazy stuff that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and all chronicles the narrative of the early church. The book of Acts is real people with real places, right? Paul is all in the book of Acts. These letters weren't like written years after the book of Acts. They're actually being written along the way. So we have this narrative of this big chunk of time. And then in and out of that, we're going to see, hey, you're going to see the church of Ephesus show up in the book of Acts. And along the way, oh, by the way, then Paul wrote this letter to the book of Ephesus. These are real people. And so you have to kind of link these books back to the book of Acts. But let me just give you a history of Paul. Paul was ethnically a Jew, Jewish person. But he was a citizen of Rome, so he was also a Roman citizen. He was trained by the Jewish religious scholars of the day, and he was extremely anti-Jesus, anti-gospel, anti-the message of the cross, so much so that he was going around Jerusalem and other places, like rounding up Christians so that they could be put in prison. When the first martyr was martyred, Stephen The Bible tells us that Paul was like holding the coats of the people who were throwing the rocks at Stephen. God intervenes in his life in Acts chapter 9. While he's walking on this road to a town called Damascus, God literally gives him a vision. And in that vision, God tells Paul, I am sending you to be a messenger to the Gentiles. That's what you're going to do. So I'm not just going to save you. You're not just going to stop persecuting me. You're actually going to go be my messenger. So then... um, Paul, Paul, everybody's afraid of Paul, right? Rightly so. He'd been killing everybody. So he ends up going away for like three years to an area just south of Jerusalem. And and God spends three years kind of teaching Paul, refining Paul. Um, He's growing whatever in his faith during those three years. They finally, he decides to come back to Jerusalem. Three years later, his, his reputation is so bad that Barnabas has to go to Jerusalem and say, hey guys, Paul's coming and just trust me, he's different. Okay, so Barnabas has to go, like, kind of lay the groundwork so then Paul can come. They finally accept Paul for who he is. And so then he leaves them. He goes to Antioch. He pastors this church, and he starts doing these missionary journeys. He does three different missionary journeys all over the Greco-Roman world. And here's what he would do. He would go into a town. These are largely Gentile towns, but most of them had a Jewish temple. He would start in the Jewish temple. He'd start preaching the gospel. Most of the people would be hostile to him, but some would accept, it, would accept his message. Then he would go to whatever other temples were in town of the other gods, and he started preaching the gospel there. And the same thing, some people would be hostile to him, some would accept his message, and then he'd build up a church that was both Jewish people and Gentile people together in a church. And like nowhere else in the world at that time were these people sitting down at the table together, loving and caring for one another. Fast forward to Acts 21. Paul is going back to Jerusalem. We're like 23 years now after the road to Damascus. And he's been all over the Greco-Roman world sharing the gospel, building churches. Along the way, 
um, this controversy just continues. The Jewish people in Jerusalem are like, hey, what's going on with these Gentiles? And like, can they be a part of this? Like, how much can they be a part of this? Like, maybe they could come and like hang out in the back, but like, this is for us, right? And some of them are like, no, hey, they can come all the way in, but they got to do all the stuff we do. You got to do all the feasts, all the ceremonies, all the things, the, the circumcision, all that stuff. They do all that. They can come in. They can do all that. So there's all this unclarity about like, hey, what's the status here? But no one is thinking like, hey, they're in and they're equal. Paul's out doing all this stuff in the gospel. Acts 23, he goes back to Jerusalem. He brings with him money that he has collected from all the Gentile churches and some Gentile believers, right? So this is like a reverse mission trip. He's got the people from the mission area and their money, and he's taking them back to like the home area saying like, hey, what's happening out there is real, okay? In Acts 23, he gets to Jerusalem, and we need to see what happens there. The people there are like, oh, man, this is awesome. Hey, we see what you've been doing. We see what God's been doing all around the world. This is awesome. He's like, hey, Paul, by the way, while you've been gone, there's some people over here that are not happy with you. They think you're trying to, like, bring an end to Judaism. They're really angry. Like, hey, could you do us a favor? Could you go to the temple? Could you go do the ceremony thing that you need to do to kind of get cleansed? And then we can sit down and talk with them, and we can kind of explain what's going on here. So Paul's like, hey, I go to the temple. It makes it, you know, shows them that I still believe in all these traditions. I'm not trying to destroy everything they believe in. So Paul goes to the temple. It's a seven-day-long ceremony that he's supposed to be a part of. And before the end of the ceremony, the Jews basically end up coming into the temple. They grab Paul. They take him out, and they say, hey, this guy is trying to destroy everything we believe in. By the way, they also accuse him. They say, this guy has actually defiled the temple. And what do they accuse him of? They said, he has brought in a... Gentile into the temple. They actually accuse, the guy's name is Trophimus. Hey, he brought Trophimus. Anybody want to guess where Trophimus is from? Ephesus. Trophimus the Ephesian is the reason Paul ends up getting arrested. So they drag Paul out of the temple. The police come. The police happen to be Roman soldiers. They take Paul into protective custody. Paul spends five years in Roman prison, Roman, under arrest by the Romans, because of his willingness to stand for the idea that everyone has access to Christ. So, do you think when they got this letter from Paul at the church at Ephesus, and they started to read things like, um, Jesus has made the two one and broken down the wall of hostility. You think that hit a little bit different for them? Because they knew literally because of them he was in jail. You think it hits a little different when Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we are joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord? Do you see the hyperlink Paul's bedded in here to what happened? Where was he arrested? The temple. And he's saying, hey, God's building a new temple between us. And I can't help but wonder if maybe our guy uh, Trophimus was actually there when this letter's read going like, yeah, what he's saying is true, and I saw how ugly this got. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. How does Paul introduce himself? I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you. Hey, who is he actually a prisoner of? Who's holding him in custody? The Romans. Why was he a prisoner? Because of the Jewish racism? He doesn't introduce himself as like, hey, I'm Paul, prisoner of the Romans. 
Hey, I'm Paul, victim of the world around me. No. You know what he says? He says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you. He finishes Ephesians 3, verse 11. He says this, or verse 12. um, Do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they're for your glory. Hey, Paul saw every circumstance that he encountered in life, even Roman imprisonment, for standing up for these very people as an opportunity for God's purpose to be advanced. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning, what circumstance you find yourself in, but I think here's the call for us this morning. Can we resist the urge to put ourselves in the center? And can we recognize that God wants glory from our lives? God wants glory from this church, and God wants to be glorified in every circumstance, even the worst of them. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. I just thank you that this world and this gospel is primarily about you and not about I pray that you would show us in our lives where we constantly pull ourselves to the center and take you out of your rightful place. I want you to have just a moment between you and God right now. And maybe you just need to pray a simple prayer of, hey, help me to see where I make it about me. Help me to make it about you. To your name we pray this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live sent.